Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, people, it's uh, episode two of recording in my uh, right next to my kitchen. I, w- I want to say it should be Cooper Talk live from Cooper's Kitchen. And what's funny is I have it set up. I have my guest on Skype, and I'm talking into the microphone. It's a, it's a cool it's a cool little system. But I feel like when I was a kid, because when I was a kid, we used to always want to tape music. You'd always want to tape your rock band, and you'd sit there, and you know, and it'd always be the same thing. You know, you're taping it, you're about to get your, you know, the Freebird. Let's say Freebird. So you're waiting for Freebird. You wait all day, and then the, the DJ goes, "Oh, Freebird's gonna come on," and you're all excited. You're like, "Yeah, Freebird's coming on," and then you sit there, and something happens. Like your mom yells, "Like, Steven, time for dinner," and it screws it up. So anyway, hopefully, I know one will yell. I, I got lucky uh, last episode, just as I got done. Twenty minutes later. The people who are cleaning outside of our building, I heard like this loud thing, and I figured out the uh, landscapers are here around 12, my time, so I can't record around 12, else I'm going to hear a lot of landscaping. But enough about that. We, we have a great we have a great guest. You know, I, I've never met this guy. I've been on his podcast, Remasculate, which is an excellent podcast. We've talked on Facebook. We talked on the phone, and uh, he's he's an amazing comic. He's been he's he's been headlining for years. He's 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 a rock star in comedy. It's uh, Steve McGrew. How you doing, Steve? Very well, Steve. How are you? Good. You know, it's funny. I mean, it's like I know you, but I've really, I've never met you, which is the funniest thing. Exactly. You know what? I think that's the weird thing about the, the, the internet and social media. You really are friends with people you friend. Do you know what I mean? You actually, at one point, just turn into friends. Like, I follow you. I follow your stories. We tweet back and forth. We comment on each other's pictures. We have actually become friends without every ever meeting. And that's what's cool. The weird thing is also though is about Facebook is all the friends that you're not friends with. Like, like you know, you get people, and I don't know if you and you, you're 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 an outspoken guy. We'll talk about that. You know, your 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 posts are very political. You 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 you're, you don't hold anything back. And so you you get into arguments with people. Understand that you know people don't like some of your comments. But for me, yeah. I, I just post basic you know basic funny stuff. I, you know, but then I hate and this may happen to you because you post funny stuff too. You post jokes and you know your nacho stuff and all that cool stuff. But what's funny is don't you hate when you post something funny and then someone tries to post something that is not funny and they think it's funny. Exactly. It's like they don't. They didn't even get the original joke. That's what. Uh, sometimes I want to delete people that comment to a to a joke or a meme that they did not understand it because that's obvious to me. You, you you don't have the intelligence here to to continue. Yeah, it's crazy. So okay, so we gotta get to you now. Now, now where you, where did you grow up and when did you start falling in love with comedy? Because you've been you've been a comic for a long time and you have uh, to have some ties to comedy as a kid. Or how this all happened? Well, comedy, uh, pretty much all my life. Well, let's go. We'll go back to. I, I'm originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where I was born. But I, I grew up most of my life in Texas, down in uh, Houston. So I started at the comedy workshop with Hicks, Kennison, and all those guys. That that was my original group. And but as far as comedy, I knew I wanted to do it all my life. Uh, I wasn't sure how and in what form. Uh, I was the cartoonist for the Houston Chronicle before I did stand-up comedy. But I just sort of all my life knew I liked jokes. I listened to comedy albums when I was a kid. I was a reader of Mad Magazine, you know, like everybody was. So humor was just something in me that I just wasn't sure what venue I was going to use to get it out. So you sat there, and when did you – you knew it was going to happen. When did you decide to go on stage, and what was your first uh, your first night like? Because as I said, it's early days. 
and I know we're all nervous, but what, how old were you exactly when you decided to say, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on stage? Uh, I would have been 20, I believe 22. And I was going through a divorce, and a friend of mine, Bill Hines, who is the cartoonist that draws Tank McNamara, okay. uh, he was dating a girl that worked at the comedy club. And so Bill got me to go to the comedy club because I was like, go with the divorce. Hey, just come out and get a laugh. Hang out. You know, that kind of thing. And I saw, saw it and kind of went, hey, I think I could do this. I would like to try that. I could get on stage and actually make fun of her. And this could be my therapy. So that really was my motivation to get on stage the first time was to, uh, to just be there and slam her, basically. <laughs> so, so you started there. So now once you did it, did you just love it or what happened? Well, the first night, uh, you, of, of course, I did, uh, I won't say well, I'll say I did okay, because I know me personally. If I'd have eaten uh, a big old pile of dog poop with a fork, I would have never gone back on stage. I know that's one of those things in me, that if I, if I don't do it well once, I'm not doing this again. So it went okay, so I did it again. And it was seriously about the third time before I ate big old dog poop with a fork. And you... <laughs> And you go, well, maybe this isn't for me. But by that time, you're already addicted. As you know, once you do stand-up two or three times, you're like, it's in your blood. It's almost a heroin of sorts. You know, it's true that you say that just for me. I mean, I don't perform that much anymore. And just because I really don't want to, I don't, you know, I'm not going to run around L.A. and try to get spots. But if someone said, hey, man, you know, here, come out on the road or here's some gigs, I would. But you're right. Once once you do it, you get you gets in your blood. And then what happens also is, I mean, you don't forget it. Like, it's it's like a bike. Once if I was on stage for a while, and then I went on after six months away, still the same thing because you've been doing it for a long. You know what you're doing. Yeah, you uh, you sort of forget. You don't forget your timing. You don't forget your attitude. But sometimes I think you forget what order your jokes go in. And every once in a while, if I take too long between, I'm like, oh, darn, that's not where this goes in your head. You know, you know the audience doesn't know, but it, you know. It's like when you're pedaling a bicycle and all of a one foot went down too fast. Like, where'd that come from? That was a slip. Right. So, so now you're doing stand-up. You're doing it a few times. Now, when do you start figuring out, okay, you know what? I can make a living doing this. And I mean, and how did you start branching into making it your job and, and working all these years with it as your job? Um, I owe that to Sam Kennison. The, uh, I was doing cartoon. I was a cartoonist for the paper during the day, and I was trying stand-up at night, and I was doing gigs and getting paid gigs. Uh, but at that point, you know, in, in the early 80s, comedy was kind of the rock scene. You know, there was a lot of drinking and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And it just got to the point where I thought, I really need to concentrate on my job because I'm not making a living at this comedy thing. And Sam took me aside one night and said, you can't quit comedy. You're, you know, you're like one of the best I know. And this is him talking to me. So I, I appreciate this. That uh, he goes, you're one of the best editors of comedy I've ever seen. And you don't want to be 70 years old and wonder if you could have made it. And I'm like, you're right. So I basically took a leave of absence for my my job at the paper and said, you know, I got to try this. And if it doesn't work out, maybe I'll come back. And in my head, I gave myself a year. I'll, you know, if I can't pay my bills in a year, I'll go back to my real job. And luckily, I've never been back. Yeah, I mean, I remember. So, you know, I know you opening up for a lot of acts and stuff like that. And, you know, and you had a very uh, slick style of 
clothes on stage, but when you started out, were you always dressed? Because you used to wear like some cool. So you're sort of like rockabilly when you when you started out. Yeah, I would know. I was always into the clothes. I was uh, I was influenced by Alice Cooper as a child. I don't, and uh, I've never met Alice, and I would love to shake his hand, and one day possibly. But I remember being a teenager and, and just fascinated at the fact that he could dress any way he wanted to and be accepted. He could be flamboyant and still be appreciated. And when I got into stand-up, I kind of was leaned that way, not not as you know transgender looking, but I wanted to be showbiz, bright, big, different. So I was wearing suits and uh, bright neon and all that kind of stuff, just different. And I was constantly changing my hair color. A lot of people have said, I, I remember when you had orange hair. Yeah, I've done it orange, red, black, black with a white stripe down the center, like Pepe Le Pew. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. I wanted to be different instead of being known for what you look like. And part of that came from... Do you remember that time where everybody sort of looked the same? Like Pee Wee Herman always looked like Pee Wee Herman. If you saw Robin Williams, he always looked like Robin Williams. He had suspenders on all the time. Right, it was right, sort right. of that period right there. Like, I don't want to be known for what I look like. I want to be known for my comedy. Okay, so so you're doing that. Now, now you're working. When you start working on the road and when you start moving up to a headliner so you can you know make more than a living, you can make a headlining money. How long did that take you to work up the ranks? Uh, it didn't take as long as it probably does pe- people now. I, I would say within two or three years, I had moved up to, to headlining. And only back because a lot of you got to remember this. At that time, the comedy was pretty fresh and new. It was only in L.A. and you know uh, New York and Dallas and those guys. And so when clubs started to pop up in Lubbock and Amarillo and Bossier City, Louisiana, they just they needed people. So we were, it was easier for us to get jobs. So you guys would just, you basically, I mean, I know Rich Scheidner had said when he would be performing, he'd be on the road, and then you'd get a call and go, hey, uh, you know, they just opened this club over here, and you have to drive, you, you would just drive, like you would expect you'd be dumb, but then just, they'd be opening clubs left and right, and you're on the road, and they'd be saying, hey, you know, they need an act here. Would this stuff like that happen? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And speaking of Rich, i got to go give Rich props. Rich was one of the first guys that I worked with, uh, who set me down and gave me great advice, too. Uh, he told me, work every gig you get, don't turn anything down, everyone's a learning experience. And uh, he sat with me one night in, in Austin, I remember talking, and we talked about how to do a headline set, how there's a difference between doing an act and doing a headline set. So, again, another guy that helped me out. Well, what's the difference? Um, I think there's, uh, the difference is just a lot of people get on stage and just do their time you know it's like uh, and then you have to structure a set to like maybe build like like you would music be strong a little let take a break come down a little bit a little dramatic end on a very high note like let it build crescendo well you see a lot of people will just come out and do their their set and i actually i tried to add more animation and acting out in my set too compared to just standing there telling my jokes yeah, because I mean that was back then. There was it was a lot of monology, and it wasn't the acting out. And you're right. I mean, it's like you know, because when I was starting, it was people. That's what you did. You know, either you were a full blown prop act like the Wid out of Philadelphia, who was amazing. Yeah. Or you were a monologist, and a lot of people weren't physical back then. No, they they really weren't, and that's it's fun to think, and you've seen it too, and that you've been around how the different times of of comedy of like you know. 
the one-liners, the monologists. Then you were an observational comic, and then you were a uh, a pun guy. And then comedy had these rules of three that you had to say something and then tag it with three taglines. And there was a period of comedy where what if what if cockroaches could salsa dance? Remember all those kind of things? Oh yeah, no, there were some. I remember you used to go, man. I had some buffalo wings. If buffalo wings, they'd be really big. It was like the stupidest joke. Like everyone would do the buffalo wings. Buffaloes don't have wings. And he'd and be like, shut up. Yeah, but you know, it was that kind of stuff. It was You see all these changes through comedy over the time. And the thing that I think I've noticed recently, I was talking to another comic last night, newer, newer people sound like they're standing there reading Twitter off their phone. That's to me the new style that I see of the new people coming up. Well, I, you know, it's 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 also is the uh, the notes when when you know knowing when I did comedy when you went to the open mic or if you tried new material you sat home and you worked it out. No one no one used notes, and now if it's almost like if you don't go on stage with notes, people are like, "What's wrong with this person?" I well, it's notes. And to me, that's. Uh, unprofessional for us, a paid set. I understand working out material that you might want to remind yourself, but for a paid set, you want to have your your kind of your act together. And I had this discussion argument with a comic uh, uh, on Facebook and Twitter uh, about it's, they were the new people think it's okay to bomb. They really said that that's what they started with. It's okay to bomb. If you're not bombing, you're not trying. Well, no, it's not okay to bomb. It's never okay to bomb unless you're working out brand new material. Oh yeah, and, and the funny thing about bombing also is, I mean, for me, when I, I mean, I was when I did stand up, I was a consistent act. I mean, I used to get booked all the time as an opener when I started, and I would go up and as a feature, I would do, I would always have a good set. I mean, it's not always great sets, but you know, you'd always have a good set. But when I would bomb, I would feel like crap, and I would sit there and I would, you, I would almost feel. I would feel like dirty when I mean I would like I wouldn't want to sit near anyone leaving a club because I'd be like they're going oh man this guy sucks and the worst was if you like brought a date and you bring He's a date and you just yeah, yeah and you eat shit and then your date's like oh, I thought you were a comic you know you just had that different look <laughs> I mean it was it was never okay to bomb for me I and that's agree. just funny how someone has that mentality. Uh, is it part of the new millennial entitlement attitude? I know. like hey they just didn't get me. Yeah. I guess I was smarter than them. Yeah, I don't. That's it's so funny because I mean, Dennis Miller was smarter than the people, and, and he he still got laughs. Exactly. So now, now you're you're, you're touring around on the road. You're going on the road now. Now I know you started opening for some some bigger acts, right? Like some you know, like country acts and stuff like that. Yeah, the first act that I ever got to open for uh, was uh, Chicago, the band yeah. Chicago. That no. was my first big one. And uh, I'd only been doing comedy seven months at the time when I got hired. And only at the club in Houston, too. This, the club in Houston only seated, like, I'm guessing, probably 60, 70 people, if that. I don't remember, but I know if one of the Houston guys is listening, they may know. But it was very small and intimate. So now I'm hired to do this room that's like three, 4,000 people. Uh, I actually threw up right before they, I went on stage. They said my name. I puked, walked out, and did my act, and did well i was very happy with the turnout but i was so nervous that i was and, okay let's do this <laughs> how, now how did you end up getting I mean, how did you end up getting the opportunity to open for chicago i mean because you know it, it's they're chicago they're a big band i mean how did that happen they just say hey we need a guy hey we got mcgrew down here how'd that happen 
Yeah, that's about exactly how it happened. But comedy was getting big. It was blowing up in Houston, and co- people were aware of comedy, and Comedy Works, uh, Comedy Workshop in Houston would have lines around the building waiting to get in. And it just became one of those, get one of the comics over here. You know, comedy's getting big. It was just one of those deals, so, so you I do- got lucky. So you do that, and then uh, what other what other groups did you open for? Because you know you were you were down you're down south. I mean, you know what what was what were some of the groups you started opening for? I mean, oh, I did uh, I did Billy Ocean, BB King, uh, the Beach Boys, Winona Judd, uh, a few others. Uh, I can't think right off the bat, but the big one, my big tour, I was Dolly Parton's opening act for a year. I traveled with her for a year. Now, what's that like? Because, I mean, you know, she's, you know, you know, I know you like country music and, and, you know, I've never been a huge country fan, but she's a legend. I mean, even if it's not the music, Dolly Parton's just, I mean, maybe because she's crossed over to acting and she's just such a free spirit and such a uh, great personality when you see her on TV. I mean, what was it like to open it? I mean, her crowd, did, did they accept you or were they like, like waiting for her? They were a combo. I mean, they accepted me because they, it went well, but they definitely were wanted Dolly. Uh, there was one, one night that I noticed that the lights would come down and people would cheer. And then they would go, uh, welcome to an evening with Dolly Parton. And while they were cheering and they go, please welcome to the stage, your comic tonight, Steve McGrew. Huh? You can okay. feel there was this. Huh? Huh? What? And so... One night, I'm about two or three jokes in. This one just guy goes, "You ain't Dolly." I go, "No, obviously, sir, I am not Dolly." So, so that one, but that for a year, that must be great because you know it's, it's year work, and you know you know you're going into good clubs. It's not like I mean, you know you're going to have people there. You know it's going to be people there because that's the worst feeling when you when you go to do comedy and you worry is there going to be people there or not, and then you get there and there's nobody there. Right. Uh, that's well. I love opening shows like that for people because they have come for a show. That different than people that just show up at a comedy club not knowing who they're going to see. People have come and they, they, they're all looking forward. Maybe they had a, a cocktail in their hand and they're ready. And I think theater shows like that are a little more forgiving than, than comedy clubs because they'll just kind of go along with whatever you're saying and then clap like crazy at the end. Right, and, and, and basically if you happen to suck – they know that the they're not there to see you anyway. They're going to see you know. They're going. Hey, we went to come see Dolly. Right. The pressure is off. Now, now, what year was this when you were opening for Dolly? That was ninety three to ninety four. Okay. Now, when did you do Star Search? I believe you were in Star Search. I was uh, ninety two. That okay. was my big. That was my big year. So now, now, why was ninety two your big year? And what was it like? And how far did you go in Star Search? Um, I made it to the semifinals. Uh, I got beat by. Vince Champ. I don't know if you remember. Isn't that, isn't that the guy who ended up in jail? It is. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so funny, you know. I mean, wasn't he? I mean, it's so weird because, you know, you think about it. We, we're comics. We work on the road with people, you know, when you're on the road. But you don't know shit about that person. You know, you could be sitting there with, as you see, with Vince Champ, a rapist. You know, but you don't you don't think that when you're doing comedy because it's like your comrades. And it, it must be, it must have been, I mean, now you're looking back, you're going, oh, well, you know what, he beat me, but look where he is. <laughs> look where I am. Yeah, he ended up in jail. <laughs> well, you know, the bad part about that was, because remember Star Search that always pull out the... Uh, the challenger and the champion. The challenger gets three, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that clip, when, when Vince got arrested, they were showing the clip of he and I on stage. And they, they, they would say, Star Search 
finalist arrested for uh, rape. And I'll be like, say which one? Yeah. Say which one? <laughs> yeah, really? You're like, no, no, come on, it wasn't me. So, this so, isn't the tease at all. So, I mean, I see, I, I didn't know he went that far in Star Search because I followed Star Search, but I still remember one. I know, I remember Mike Saccone won, Mike Saccone. And then I remember Ron Gallup was a Philly guy who he went down to the finals. I think there was three people in the finals that year. But then it's funny. I didn't know. Now, did Vince Champ win? No, actually, I, he did. I don't think he even made it to the the finals because uh, I I did four. I won three. I lost in the fourth one. Made it to the semifinals, uh, and I I lost in the semifinals, which was a, a, a to me was heartbreaking because I know exactly what happened. I I in the semifinals you were allowed to use the best of your material over the time you were on there. So. Material that I had gotten like three and three quarter stars with, I, I you put together to make my semifinal act. Now, uh, for the final show, they had more judges than typical. They had instead of four, they had seven, as I recall, which was four women and three guys. And my material at the time leaned toward a little bit of it might be considered sexist today. Okay, not back. Not back then, you know what I mean? Or to me, like Stewart, should the stewardess's butt be at least smaller than the aisle itself? That's not sexist. That's just good math, right? You know that that kind of stuff. And uh, the the girl that beat me is not even doing stand up anymore. It was one of those things that I, I I felt that the judges just went, "We're giving it to her." Who, who beat you? Um, a, a girl. A, you know, Pam, somebody, and I can't remember her name, but I looked it up a while back just to see whatever happened, and and uh, she's kind of out of the business. That's crazy. So, so that that was you. Now, did you get a lot of buzz that you did that show? Yeah, I did, and that's where I, I got, uh, got got the agency, and I got uh, I got the Tonight Show from that, and but I got this another thing. I got bumped for the Tonight Show. Uh, Jim McCauley had, had booked me, and I went down, met with them, got my material approved. Now, was this, this, was this was this Carson or Leno? Carson. Okay, so this was the Tonight. This is when you say this is like the Tonight Show. The Tonight Show, Carson. Yeah, and they're like, "That's Johnny Star over there. Don't step on that. Don't do this." And uh, I got bumped from the show. I, it wasn't the night that I was supposed to do it, but I got bumped because they had to reschedule some stuff. And uh, then Carson went into the retirement mode. And I never got back. So you got bumped and you never got called back. Yeah. So that after, must... after, after getting there and meeting and have my stuff approved, just standing in the studio. And Macaulay ran into me years later before he, he died. You know, he died not long ago. And he ran into me at the improv and he apologized to me. He goes, I, you know, I'm sorry that happened. I know how that feels to a person, you know, to get that close. And, you know, it's just one of those things. And hope it didn't bother you too. Like, yeah, it bothered me a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's Tonight Show, and that's what's crazy. As I say, you know, when you're talking, you know, I talked to a lot of comics who have done The Tonight Show when it was a Tonight Show. And it was, I mean, even though you had a heat and you were, you know, you were doing the, you know, you had Star Search and all that, The Tonight Show back then, change, I mean, it could really change your career. Oh, it made or break you. It made or broke you right there. I mean, look at Roseanne. Roseanne Barr from Denver, who, where I was living at the time. She goes on, does the show like once, and becomes a major star. Next thing you know, they're putting a sitcom around her. You know, Louis Anderson, same thing. Louis went on, boom, star. That doesn't happen anymore because I don't think those TV shows have the same uh, viewership anymore. That was the time when it was basically three channels, you know, and most of America watched one of those three channels. And yeah, and it's funny, it's also, it's like, if you notice it now, 
they don't have a lot of stand-ups on late night anymore. I mean, you know, it, it, occasionally like Fallon will have one, but you know, Kimmel really doesn't have stand-ups, and and I don't really watch Colbert and uh, and Seth Meyers might, but I don't watch him. So it's like stand-ups don't really have the opportunity because I, I don't think people really care anymore sometimes to watch it on TV. I think when uh, they went through a period that well, Leno didn't do it either. You know, Leno didn't have a lot of comics. And somebody told me he thought that he didn't want him because Leno didn't want to have somebody funnier than him on. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what somebody told me. But um, if you think back just recently, look back at the 80s and the 90s, how we had Evening at the Improv, Caroline's Comedy Hour, Comedy on the Road, uh, VH1 Stand-Up Spotlight, MTV Half Hour Comedy. I can go on, on and on. None of that is on TV now. I, <coughs> None of that. I know. I mean, it used to be... You would sit there and you would flip, and yeah, it was all the channels, you know, Comedy in a Row with John Biner, Comic Strip Live, and it was just, it was crazy. Now, which ones of them did you do? Um, I did almost all of those. And seriously, I did uh, Comedy in the Road, Evening at the Improv, like five or six times. Uh, I did Car- Live from Car- remember Caroline? Yeah. Was all. Now, now, uh, would, now would, they con- would they fly you out, or how would that yeah, work? Yeah, they would all fly you out, because they were done by production companies and TV channels. So they, they would fly out and put you up, and it's great. MTV Half Hour was one of my favorite ones. And, but now, I was, I was telling a young comic this, I think comedy doesn't have the exposure that it did on TV. And thank God, this is where YouTube and Twitter has taken its place. I think they ran in and filled the hole of uh, the exposure. And that's why you hear people talking about, oh, that guy's a YouTube star. You know, that's, that's the new avenue for people to find you other than, I saw this guy on the evening at the improv. Right, but I mean, but as a comic, that must sort of, you know, and as being someone creative, it must bother you a little bit that, you know, a YouTube star, a lot of them, it's just overproduct, it's overproduced crap. I mean, let's get honest, you know, there's some stuff you sit there and it's like, it's not really comics. I mean, it's, it's hard to sit there and take some of these people serious because it's, they're just, they're doing cutting with their camera, cutting this, cutting that. There's no real substance. Right. No, I, I agree, and I, and I think that's one of the reasons that club owners have said to me, a lot of times the people that are YouTube stars don't have the acts that real comics have. Like, these guys will sell tickets, and that's why they're getting booked, but they'll go, well, get like, two, two-thirds of the room walked. Right, yeah, because then it's also, I mean, it's like, it's the old story of, you know, someone's been doing comedy for three years, Gets a TV show or gets something, you know, they're not they're not ready to headline. And if they if they run into the road with with a with a a road, road strong feature, who you know is probably headlining the two days earlier in the week when those guys aren't there, they're going to get smoked. Exactly. Yeah. Those the road comics when people make fun of the road comics or those get slow. You know, those guys are road. Yeah, they're actually working comics. They're not waiters and uh, just you know getting their five minutes on stage waiting to be discovered. Those guys are actually honing an act. And I think that's so funny when I hear the L.A. or New York guys go, that's just a road comic. Right. All right, well, you, you come out here and let's, let's see how you do. Yeah, because you're, you're, you're up against different obstacles every night. You don't know what kind of crowd it's going to be. I mean, be honest, L.A. or New York, you know it's going to be a mixed crowd. It's going to be a good crowd. I mean, most of the time they're going to be good because they're there and they, they're wanting to see a star, so they're going to laugh. But on the road, you don't know what you're going to encounter. You don't know who's going to be in the audience. There could be, you know, I remember I did this show in Wheeling, West Virginia, and it was like, it was supposed to be the opener and me, and the opener did like two minutes and brought me on, and I had to do 45 minutes. What was dollar pitcher night? 
and they started, <laughs> and it was all military guys, and they started drinking at like five. So by nine o'clock, they're wrecked. I can't even do my act. I can't. People just walking across the stage. It wasn't even a stage. It was like a dance floor. Remember those clubs like that? And they're walking across just to get a picture. Finally, I, I just walked off. I said, you know, screw this, man. I'm, I'm not hanging out and doing this bullshit. Well, good for you. I was watching uh, just the other day on Netflix. Uh, Hannibal Barres got a new special on Netflix about him in Edinburgh. And one of the shows that they showed a clip of was him being heckled in Edinburgh and just going, I don't need this, fuck this, I don't need this shit, and just walked off. And I thought, bravo, there's so many times I wanted to do that, but I have, I've got that in me of like, I, I will win you bastards over, I will do whatever it takes, and then finally 45 minutes with, damn it, never got them. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then you walk off and you're just like, oh my God, you like want to run out of the club. So Yeah, so I have, I have respect for people that have as much respect for themselves to go nope I ain't doing this yeah it's just sometimes you know I mean that was the only time I did that just because you know it was just it was unbearable I there was no reason for me to be up there you know I I was screwed no one was listening and you know a dollar picture with a bunch of military guys I mean come on and this is when it wasn't the military but now when they're going overseas this is when the military was like you know you didn't know what you were going to do with your life you know you didn't get into community college so you joined the military so you're just hanging out around base and going to clubs at night. Yeah, that's basically, and it was awful. So now, now you're, you're after the Tonight Show didn't go through, and you're doing all these comedy, these these shows. Now you're still constantly on the road, or you're still working for opening for uh, people, or are you doing more of your own headlining at clubs? Or, I mean, which way are you going? I'm doing a lot after Dolly. Uh, I, I worked for uh, Winona a little bit, Winona Judd. I did a few of her shows, but didn't get a tour. And this. About at that time is when uh, a lot of the venues and bookers started putting uh, opening acts from their own label on. So you know what I mean? Like, oh, they've got one hit. Well, we should help support this act. Instead of having a comic, they started using uh, other bands or singers or whatever to help boost careers. So, so uh, I, I had to get back into clubs, basically. And uh, I, I started enjoying that because now I was the star again. After following, you know, uh, seeing people be stars and see the way they're treated, you kind of want that for yourself. Right. You're like, I do this. I want this. I want to be a comedy star. I didn't start out to be the opening act. I started out to be a star. So it felt good again to just go back to the clubs. Now, what was the transition like, though? Just because, you, as you said, you, you're, you are going from, I mean, let's be honest, opening, it's, it's a cush crowd. I mean, you know, as you said, they're there to see a show. They paid good money. Then you go to a comedy club, which, you know, they might have a two-for-one. It might be $10. You know, there's always a two-drink minimum, so people are always get a little <laughs> bit lit. So, so, I mean, what was it like transitioning, like, back into that? You said it, and you know it, and you feel it. That's exactly what it felt like. I'd, I'd come off stage thinking, God, you know... Last year at this time, I was in the Four Seasons Hotel on the top floor eating room service, and now I'm eating out of a vending machine in a motel in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It's you know it's crazy. Well, and it's also I, I noticed is now back back you know back then, I think the money was better for acts, but no one had merch, and then that's the big thing. I mean. You know what? I mean, do you, could you ever imagine how much money you could have made if anyone had the idea of merch? There was one guy in Philly who sold merch, Big Daddy Graham. He sold albums and he had them, but no one had merch back then. 
Yeah, no, over the years, I can't imagine how much money that, that I've lost. And comics that were selling stuff till, still tell me, you know, how much you're still losing. Because I'm, I'm not a salesman maven now. Every once in a while, I'll get some T-shirts printed up that I think are funny. But for the most part, I can't carry this stuff around. I don't want to be out there with a shot glass and a pair of underwear right. and a T-shirt. and a, <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't want to do that. And I've heard guys like, well, you know, the Rolling Stones, they sell merch. No, they don't. I've never seen Mick Jagger at right. a table after you know, <laughs> want to buy one of my T-shirts. You, you, know? you know what's funny about that? There's a, there's a little it's – a, it's a concert venue in Burbank. It's called the Starlight Bowl. And it's, uh, it's an outdoor venue, and it holds probably 3,000. And they, they get some good bands. They, not as much anymore, but they used to get like Berlin or, you know, different, you know, just different cool bands. And yeah, it's one of those places, you know, you take your own beer and wine, you take your food in. But I went one, uh, like two years ago, and it was a concert, and it was a Bon Jovi cover band opening uh-huh. for a Journey uh-huh. cover band. And what's cracked me up, no, this is what the best part is. The Journey cover band was very good, but I didn't get it. I mean, it went from Stephen Perry to a Filipino guy, and this guy was, like, Hispanic. So it's like, at least get a guy who fits into the groove of the lead singer. But they were selling merch, and I couldn't believe, like, people were bought, bought like, their album, the album CD, and I'm thinking, well, why don't you just go buy the best of Journey CD? Wouldn't that make more sense? Exactly. But I think people get caught up in the moment of leaving a show and wanting a memory. That's you know, true. Just, if anything, I just want to, whatever just happened right there. Now, now, when you were on the road back then, where were you living? Were you still based in Houston or where were you living? Um, well, I started on the road in Houston and I moved uh, to Denver in 84. And so basically from 84 on was living in Colorado until I moved to, let's see, I moved to L.A. in December of 93, I think it was, and then left in 97 to move back to Denver. What brought you to Denver? um, Just always wanted to be here. My family has owned a cabin up in the mountains ever since I was a little kid, and they came here every summer, and I never could figure out why. If you love a place, why don't you just move there? So that's what happened to me. I just thought as an adult... I'm going to go live in Colorado. So now when you moved to L.A., what happened? Did you like it? Did you like it? Or were you expecting, I mean, were you expecting to get, what was your goal when you were moving to L.A.? What was your, what did you sit there and move here for? The industry to get on TV? Or what was your goal when you got out here? I wanted to be a star, damn it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, my goal was to be everything. I thought L.A., once I finally broke, you know, I I signed with, uh, I was with William Morris first, but nothing really happened. And that's kind of the old joke. You know, I've heard that Elvis signed with William Morris because he was tired of being seen after he died. Because uh, so then I got with APA and I got more stuff with APA. And so I was I was getting auditions and uh, they got me some of those personal appearance on TV things. And then one night I had opened for the Beach Boys, and the head of APA saw me and really liked me and said. Uh, if you could do anything you want, what, what would you want to do? Do you have any ideas for movies, sitcoms? What do you have? And I go, well, I've had an idea for a sitcom that for a long time. And he goes, get it on my desk and let's talk about it. And I ended up writing uh, a sitcom called Trailer Trash. And I wrote it basically by myself. Uh, and then I turned it in. Cause my, group, my, my now ex-wife would she was my editor, so I said by myself. I wrote it, and she kind of went, that's bad grammar. Change that. You know? right. So 
Uh, I got it on the I got it on the uh, to the APA. I got it sold to Disney. Disney bought the pilot. Uh, they said, "Okay, we need to do put you with a showrunner," and now we have to rewrite the pilot. And by the time it got rewritten, it kept getting unfunnier and unfunnier. And that's not what I wanted to do. And that's not the direction I would would have taken it. And you know, why do you have an eighty year old paper boy? Because they have those in the South. Well, I don't think that's funny. You know, it's that, it was that kind of stuff, and it basically just fell apart. And it was at the same time, and it was the same producer that uh, that did my wife and kids. Remember Damon Wayans? Yes. Show? Yes. It was about the exact same time that mine fell apart, and that took over. They were really just looking for a new uh, tool time family. Uh, everybody loves Raymond kind of. Uh, script at that point and mine just didn't make it because i let too many hands get in it and i really think that's what happened i mean if you like something enough that you like it and you bought it why not try to just run with that yeah you know it's it's funny that happens it's like that all happens to so many shows except i've talked to some seinfeld writers who like no one ever no one ever butt in on larry david because larry david would have just said screw this i'm out of here like the then they said it made it so easy because when you wrote and it was okayed by larry you didn't have to worry about the rehearsals where the, the network would come in and say, yeah, you can't say this. It'd be like, forget it. Same with, uh, with uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy Big Bang and all that. Um, Laurie. Oh, yeah. He's the same thing. You know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to go to the network because you know what? When it comes to sitcoms, he is the network. You know, it's like without him, they don't have the sitcoms. So I think that's what happens a lot of times. The hands get involved and it's the suits who really don't have any creative thing. I, I wrote a, I got option to screenplay when I, moved out here and it was one of those awful deals it was like $1,500 and if it got sold 75000 but you're a first time writer and it was yeah. I was trying to do something to make a comment about a, a short bus and the guy had no idea what the short bus was because uh, it was about this guy who was sort of not you know athletically inclined and I'm like oh I guess I'm going to ride sh- shotgun on a short bus What's a short bus? I'm like, well, you don't know what the short bus is? You want to you write comedy about someone who's not mentally challenged, but this joke works perfectly. And I think that happens a lot of times, that these, these people don't know anything about writing or comedy. Well, I remember specifically one of the jokes that has been in my act for a while that actually works. I asked my dad what the secret to a good marriage was. He said yard work, alcohol and yard work. Okay. <laughs> Say That joke was in my script. They sat down and go, well, you should say vodka instead of alcohol. I go, why? Because vodka is a funny word. I go, yeah, but this joke works. Yeah, but we're going to say vodka because we think it, like, little little shit like that. Just It's nick, it's nick nitpicky. Nitpicky. It's yeah, nitpicky. It's you like know? You, you know it works because you know what? You've been in the trenches doing it. And yeah, the bottom and line is no one's going to sit there. It's going to get the same laugh either way. I mean, let, let's be honest because it's, yeah, it, it's crazy like that. And they would, they would just do random things like uh, – well, well, you need to, to say this. And I go, well, no, see, that that is making f- fun of the South, and my script was portraying the South. And there's a big difference between, you know, making fun of it and, and people saying, I can relate to that. And I think that's one of the reasons it started not to work, work or at least to me, because as a Southern, we don't talk like that. We wouldn't do that. That's not the attitude we have. You know what I mean? It started... Like, they couldn't just see what I had. And I think there's a lot of times that's the mistake of, of Hollywood is, like, they want to make it Hollywood and send it out to middle America. Middle America goes, now nah, we're not buying it. Look how right. many sitcoms got, get, get green light and, and 
canceled within two or three weeks. Yeah, it's crazy because yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't. We don't know what the Midwest is. I mean, and the thing is, Hollywood doesn't know. So no, now you. How long were you in Hollywood for? A little over four years. Okay, now what made you decide to just well, now when you were doing this? Were you also going out on the road still, or were you just concentrating in Hollywood? No, I was going out on the road. I was doing a lot of road work, and uh, I was living in an apartment in Long Beach, and uh, I was loving the the sunshine and the beach. I hated the traffic. It really did. I'm sure it's gotten worse now, but I hated the traffic. And then as I as I started to, you know, little things. It's like being married to somebody that you start to realize I don't like the way you breathe. Right. Why do you stare at me when you when I you know when I'm watching TV? Why do you know what are that these little things? You know what I mean? And L.A. started. It, just started picking at me. I was like, I don't like the traffic. I don't like the attitude of some of these people. I feel like I'm living in a town of liars. It was just one of those deals. So and uh, and I was I was doing stand up, and then when I the uh, script didn't get picked up, and it all so, sort of fell apart. My now ex wife said, "You should just leave. We should just take this money from the script and go back to Denver. This town is making you unfunny." And I I have to agree with her. I I, I caught myself. Things that were getting me standing ovations in middle of America were getting me oohs and boos in L.A. Like they had this attitude of the political correctness really coming on, you know, in the early 90s, mid-90s. And so they – and I started watching the other comics in L.A. If you watch L.A. comics, they have a tendency to walk and talk and act exactly like L.A. comics, which New York comics have sort of the same walk and talk of New York comics. And I didn't want to – have the funny taken out of me because I didn't want to start doing like my LA jokes or these are my Hispanic jokes or these are my 7-Eleven jokes or here's my audition jokes and so she was right I needed to get back to middle America and just make fun of everything so you moved back to Denver yeah so that's when I went back to Denver and now when did you start getting involved in radio in Denver because I know you you went I mean was that something that you would planned on doing or did that just drop into your lap because you had lived there for a long time you've been you've been a comic i mean how'd that all happen it sort of dropped into my lap and this is another one of those uh, entertainment uh stories that kicks you in the balls and moves you on i got uh i went to um the the com montreal i started saying melbourne that was later went to the montreal comedy festival and i got i I got picked as one of the best of the festival. I had my jokes quoted as best of the festival. Um, I got picked to be on uh, a couple of talk shows to because of being part of the best of the festival. And uh, uh, nothing came from it. Not one thing came out of it. So later that same year, uh, like a year later, I guess it was, I went and did a Melbourne Comedy Festival. And again, with doing a full run the show was doing good we were selling tickets and people were like you guys are doing great some of the shows aren't even selling out and i, I kind of got i started getting discouraged with the industry because i'm like i'm i'm doing the best i can do you know i can't be this is all i can do i can only write and perform i need somebody else's help to take me to the next level and obviously i don't know what to do i don't know who i'm supposed to sleep with or cuddle with or spoon with or right or whatever and at about that exact same time that I was getting discouraged, uh, radio approached me to become uh, one of the morning show hosts here in Denver. Okay, now was that? And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that was KYGO. That was the station that I that was on. And it just it, in my mind, I started thinking, well, you know, what's the difference between going to a studio and being an actor and portraying a character in a sitcom, 
or I go to a radio studio, same word, and portray Mudflap, this radio kind of a country DJ. And I decided, what's the difference? I'll take the money. And I just, that way I'll be a radio guy, I'll sleep in my own bed, and this will be great. Now, did you come up with the name Mudflap, or was that something they came up with? They came up with. I was actually on the air for six months under my real name, and one day we were talking about the, the stock show rodeo here in Denver, and one of my co-hosts said something about that, that red cow, and I go, oh, you mean the, the Hereford? And she goes, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, that, she didn't know. I grew up on a farm. My dad raised Charlay cows, so I was around this stuff. And uh, they started teasing me about being a redneck and growing up on a farm. And why did, did I have a name like Bubba? Because every country guy's got to have a nickname. Right. <laughs> and the program, program director heard that and called me in and said, they're right. You need a nickname. Uh, think about it. Let's get together and find out what, what you want to be called. Well, he calls me the next day and goes, we're going we're gonna to name you Mudflap. Oh, well, thanks for letting me think about, right. about it. So, so that name was given to me, and I'm, the more I thought about it, I was kind of okay with it because it's easy to remember. I mean, you hear it once. You don't, as you know, Steve was yeah, exactly. Steve, one of those names. Well, see, I've, I've always just been called Cooper all my life. Coop, Coop, that's see? what I do, Cooper talking because it sticks yeah. because, you know, it, it's something that, yeah, Steve, there's like so many, Steve or Steve. And I mean, it, it's so popular that there's two spellings. Yeah. And uh, so Mudflap, you hear that once, they remembered. And it made it easy to market, too, because, you know, Mudflap girls are, are everywhere. You see those posters and, and hats and decals. And, and I thought, this is great. I can use what's already done for promo and slap things around and Mudflap. Well, uh, then I ended up winning three CMA Awards, Country Music Association, Best Radio Morning Personality. Now, what was the format of your show? I mean, what was it just, was it? jokes i mean because was it a morning zoo type or i mean what was your your format well there was three of us on the show uh and i described it as a hick a dick and a chick okay that's that's kind of the way it, it went because we had the straight guy you know hi ever good morning everybody it's a quarter past the hour you know that guy and then we had the oh i was talking to my girlfriend the other day you know that one and then my attitude was just to chime in with jokes and i was kind of the smart ass and that's the way the dynamic of our of our show worked and uh there was more talking at this time when i first started doing it in 2001 2002 they gave us more time uh, and then the ratings were showed the not raised but, but the people meter the, I don't know if you know this the, they called the ppm people meter started showing that people were tuning out if they didn't like a song or if somebody was talking too much so they started playing more songs less talk and that's kind of what as it got into down to two minutes of two minute breaks, I'm like, I'd rather go back to stand up and have fun. Right. I, I think because yeah, I mean, it's something that once again, also, you know, they don't see that people want something different. That's why podcasts and and talks is so much popular because nowadays you're going to make your choice. You know, I listen to certain morning shows. You know, some people listen to serious radio. You know, I don't. I don't personally listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to yours occasionally. I listen to a few others, but I because for me, I do this. But what people don't get is that some people. I want to hear someone who's funny or talented if I'm going to listen to a morning radio show because I know in the afternoon I'm going to hear all music. Exactly. Well, part of what their their problem is, and radio does not get this and doesn't understand it um, because I wasn't. From radio, I didn't study radio, I wasn't schooled in radio, I was just a comic, so all I thought about was entertainment. Um, what the 
radio people don't know because they're in the music world is they're saying, well, we want to hear, we don't want to hear people talking. No, they don't want to hear untalented people talking. That's what they don't. They don't want to hear somebody just rambling if there's not going to be a punchline or an end to this payoff to the story. And I think that's what they're, they've done to themselves is they, they started, you know, cutting back, they cut back pay, they lost people. Now we can hire somebody for $10 an hour that's right out of school. Well, now they're not very good at it. Well, listeners don't want to hear them talk. Oh, have them talk less. Do you see the evil cycle that they kind of created for themselves? Right. So, so now, uh, how long were you in it before you left? Um, I was nine, 11 years altogether. So you, nine you, years at one station you, and two years at another station. You were, you were a veteran. I mean, you, you know, people knew you in, in Denver. Yes. Oh, yeah, I couldn't go. It was really one of those stations, uh, those things like you hear in the country song about Kansas City Star, that's what I are. You know, that's, right. they recognize you everywhere you go. That was one of the, my, my, even my son was like, can you go anywhere without being recognized? No, isn't it great? <laughs> now, now, when you did stand-up, would, would the people come out in droves and see you when you played in the area? No, they would come out. This is funny. I actually talked to Wendy Curtis, who owns the comedy club here. Um, she, she said that she thought that radio, in a way, hurt my stand-up credibility because people don't assume radio DJs are that funny. Right. That they, you know, oh, he's cute, he's amusing, I think he's funny on the air, but he's not like, like, bust a gut funny. And so I, I think that happens uh, because people have that concept. They only know what you've done on the radio. They assume, like, oh, he might tell a cute story, but I'm going to save my money and pay to go see uh, th- this guy. So now, now, since when you left the radio, you, probably, you must have missed it a little bit because you started your podcast. What made you decide to start your podcast? Well, I was a big fan of podcasts. I, uh, I'm one of those, I've always been into technology like as soon as it breaks. I want to know about it. I love it. I'm a gadget guy. So I was listening to podcasts. And it's one of the things I went to radio with before I left, say, we need to do more like this. We need to have shows that let's take a theme and let's get guests and let's do that. And when I finally left, I thought, this is my chance to do it. You know, I've got equipment from radio. I've got mics. I've got mixers. Let's just do this. And and uh, when I started my podcast, I started it daily. And that is a pain in the ass. Well, yeah. I did that for a year, almost a year, doing it daily. Now, were you doing just, were you just were you doing interviews? What were you doing every day? Um, well, there was doing a shorter podcast. I was doing a 20 to 30 minute podcast because at that time, that's what people said they wanted. And I would just come down and rant. Like, I would take news stories where I'd write things about. Uh, things that I'd seen, or is this bugging you guys? And I would basically tell stories or rant, and that was my podcast at first. And then I realized, hey, I should get guests. I've got a lot of celebrity friends. I made a lot of contacts in the country music world, and I started slowly getting the guests in, and then I made it my uh, once a week with a guest podcast. And it's Remasculate. Remasculate, yeah. That's, that's kinda, and that got started because a friend of mine, uh, another radio DJ, we both feel like men are getting the, the shaft these days. That, you know, if you look at sitcoms, the guy's never smart enough, the wife's brilliant. The commercials, the guy's the dummy, the girl knows the product. Oh, I, I, I gotta interrupt you, the commercials. That's like, I, Joanne goes crazy when I see that State Farm when the girl gets the check. Oh, I thought girls were worse drivers. Looks like I got a discount check. And he goes, and she, and she goes, in Dennis Haysburn's voice, quiet. And I'm like, I hate that girl. Yeah, I do. Me too. I agree. 
but that's the kind of stuff, the attitude. I, I think they're trying to make men just look dumber and dumber. And I think a lot of the uh, attitude, and this has got, gotten me in trouble, and this actually got me in trouble on radio. I think there is a single mom in America, n- not that they had the kid, not that, you know, whatever. It's the fact that when you're a single mom, you have trouble being the dad at the same time. And so we've had this attitude of, you know, like little coddling of boys and don't do that and don't play with guns. I wouldn't play with guns. Well, you're a mom. You don't play with guns. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. Or going, what I'm leaning to? Instead of the, the, uh, the hey, shake it off. Get up back out there. You're, you know, oh, get over here. Well, yeah, I always said when you were a kid, you know, if you tripped, like we were always roughhousing as my mama called. And if you tripped and fall, you'd be okay. Until you saw some blood, then you start crying because you you know you get some attention. But if you saw that right. blood the first time, your mom didn't come over and go, "Oh," you'd be like, "Oh, okay." Uh, if she didn't do that, you would think, "All right, it's just normal." Exactly, and I thought I think there's been too much of this the coddling of, uh, and I call it the feminization of, of boys. And then you say something like that, and they'll go, "Well, what's wrong with that? Hey, what's wrong with it? Look around. That's what's wrong with it." I think we're becoming more and more sensitive and uh, everything bugs everybody and you don't know how to shake stuff off and you don't know that life is hard. And, you know, uh, these little kids today, I feel like they're like, oh, I have a hangnail. I'm a pussy. You take me to the hospital. You right. Know what I mean? we're, we're running out of time. Uh, I want to ask you now, because of that attitude you have, does that reflect on your act? And now I know because you've, you've done some European tour uh, cruises, you, you always tour. How does the crowd now react to your humor uh well actually it's getting more and more accepted i guess i should say like a, i just did a hong kong tour and uh malaysia and stuff and they loved it i'm actually going back in september i think they kind of like the big boisterous boisterous kind of whatever word i'm looking for <laughs> uh, you know just being being bigger you know that kind of having an attitude they're just telling jokes there's an attitude and a point behind where you're going with your act so now now do you like going to different countries or do you like playing still in america or what's what, what do you like better um i like well i love playing america because it's my home but when you go over to like hong Kong, they're having the comedy explosion that we had over here in the 80s it's like the, the crowds are packed. They love everything about it. you kind of the star. You get off stage, go to a bar. Nope, this is on us. You know, this kind of thing. You know, free dinners across the street over such and such restaurant because they loved you. It's, it's that kind of attitude that's going on. So I'm, I'm really okay with working out of the country. Now, now what is it, how do you enjoy the cruises? Because there's a lot of downtime when you do a cruise. There's a lot of downtime, but I'm... Uh, I don't mind being alone. I'm one of those guys. I like to read a lot. I like to write. So my downtime doesn't feel like I've got nothing to do. You know, I'm just going to sit here and drink all day and wait for the, the show tonight. And so I'm, I'm one of those that I don't mind getting off the ship, just sitting at a coffee shop, enjoying the review, uh, enjoying the view and, and writing or reading. Now, you play Vegas a lot. A lot. Now, now I heard the improv's closing. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I don't know, what, Wendy, Wendy Liebman posted today. I heard it's closing at the end of May. Ooh. I don't know, but you know, you, you play... Well, that, I do Brad Garrett's Comedy Club there in the MGM. Uh, I work uh, the Tropicana for uh, Harry Basil there at the Laugh Factory. And uh, uh, a couple other places around. But, but the town, I just heard this today from John Payton, who runs Sin City Comedy Club in Vegas at the uh, Planet Hollywood. He was saying that 
Vegas is becoming oversaturated with comedy. That there's every casino's got some type of small room or comedy night or something because they're it's cheaper to produce than Cirque. Yeah, I mean well, that makes sense. And also, as you see, you know, I, I see it on Facebook these Vegas comics. They put there's all these. Um you know, other gigs. I always crack up though when these LA comics drive out there when you know they're not getting paid. And I'm like, what are you driving to Vegas to perform? Like some guy's going to get a hotel room and they stay there. I'm like, are you getting paid? Is it a free hotel? They're like, no. I'm like, then just stay around here and do the work. Yeah, pick up 50. I always do that for gigs. I always weigh it out in my head. Like, okay, if it's going to cost me this and travel and I have to buy a hotel, I better double my money or I'm not doing it. Right, so, you exactly. Know what I mean? That's my attitude. Of, because I'll stay home, make 500 bucks. Or I could make six hundred if I travel and the money's right. right. Now, now, are you going to start getting merch? Because I have one of your shirts. I have the uh, the Sons of Hilarity shirt, and I wore it when Mark Boone Jr. was on my show. Are you are you going to get more shirts? Because people will buy the shirts. Yeah, I, I am going to do it because I'm getting requests now. I'm seriously. I just did Birmingham, Alabama, and I bet I could have made a thousand dollars with people going. Do you have T-shirts? Do you have CDs? Do you have cassettes? Yeah, somebody even asked me about a cassette. See, I, I, I love cassettes. I, I found I found a. Uh, I, I thought Joanne threw it out when she moved out here just because she thought I would be a dork. But I found this little cassette player I have, and I'll walk around with that shit in Burbank when I take my walk. I don't care because I like it, and I got a lot of good cassettes. Good for you. Well, hey, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Urban Outfitters has brought back cassettes. I don't know if you go or shop at Urban Outfitters. There, there's, there's an Urban they, Outfitters in Burbank, and you know what? I sit there, I go in there, and I can't crack, I can't handle the attitude. I'm like, dude, you're you're a designer shirt above Walmart. That's it. <laughs> But they've actually brought back, you know, like Polaroid cameras. They're selling Polaroid cameras again, uh, those instant film. They actually have cassette decks, and they're selling cassette tapes. Like the hipsters and the young people are rediscovering what you and I thought were, you know, well, that's I got a pile of those over here. I have a ton upstairs. I, I you know, it's like my car. I have an old car. I mean, my car is a '96, but I only has 110,000 miles on it. So hey, I pay fifty dollars, fifty-two dollars a month for insurance. I don't need a new car. Everyone goes, you should get a new car. I go, why? I said, I already have a hot girlfriend. I don't need a new yes. car. But it has a cassette deck. Yeah. And I like the cassette. My, my girlfriend and my car are smoking. Exactly. <laughs> well, okay, we got to wrap up with a few. Now, now where, 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 where are you coming up? Where are you going to be performing soon? Uh, I will This weekend, on April 23rd, I will be at, in Vegas for the Comedy 24-7 Festival. Okay. It's a one-night comedy festival in Orleans, which is going to be Billy Gardell, uh, T.J. Miller, myself, Bobby Slayton, and Brian Scolaro. And uh, that's that's the big one. And then two weeks after that, I'm in Reno at the Laugh Factory. And then first week of June, back at MGM for Brad Garrett. That's my immediate schedule. Okay. Now, now, now how can people get a hold of you? Um, I say Google Steve McGrew and everything comes up. That's typically how I say it. But I've got Facebook, Twitter, uh, Vine. I love I love Twitter. I'm addicted to Twitter, cool. and um, yeah, just I'm on I'm on typically every bit of social media. Good. Well, God, I want to thank you for coming on, man. I'm glad we could do this. I'm, you know, the studio closed, and I actually got because we talked about it. But I always miss you when you're in town because I was never in the studio because you got here like on a Wednesday when you played the Ice House. Yeah, and you had scheduled days. I record on yeah. Tuesdays. Well, yeah, yeah, and I do that now. But I anyway. But I want to thank you. So people, go check out Steve McGrew. Um, check me out, CooperTalk.net. I have five hundred episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I will get back to you. Twitter, it's at CooperTalk. Follow me. I tweet a lot, especially during the political stuff. But it's all in fun. Uh, Facebook, I have a new page, Cooper Talk Radio. 
Cooper Talk Radio. I'm going to keep this one updated because uh, I'm on a bunch of different affiliates you can check out if you don't want to hear on my website or iTunes or Stitcher where it's also Cooper Talk and Instagram, Cooper Talk One. And if you play words with friends, I'm Cooper Talk One. I like playing words with friends. And I have one guy, I love him to death, but I beat him almost every time, but he still keeps playing. So people come out and get it. So follow Steve McGrew, Google Steve McGrew, check out Steve McGrew's uh, work. Follow me at Cooper Talk, CooperTalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you next week.